Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. I'm Mary Mate. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Our website is UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Please go there, support the show, get bonus content, help keep us going, and deliver yucks every week about how crazy our world is. Pop culture, weather news, uh, one woman debates over shows that I watch because Aaron doesn't watch any. Mm -hmm. Yes. Riveting conversations between one person who actually watches movies and, and shows. And also staunch advocacy for no more drinking on airplanes yeah that's aaron aaron may not you know aaron more than makes up for not watching any movies or or shows he he more than makes up for that with his passion about uh pro airline prohibitionism yes well speaking of passion turning to our four basic food groups democrats if i'm right katie have a passion for defending genocide right now Oh, they are very passionate about genocide. Yeah, let's take a look at this great uh, chat with Nancy Pelosi, who's being asked about America's support for Israeli genocide against Palestinians. If you don't like what Israel is doing, and the president has made it clear that some of what Israel is doing he doesn't like, and, and you go on supplying them with hardware to do those things, you own this operation every bit as much as they do, don't you? No, we don't. We don't. We have always supported Israel as our uh, national security friend, largely because it was in our interest to do so. Largely because it was in to do so. We had shared values at only democracy uh, in the region. Uh, The behavior of Netanyahu is, in my view, inexcusable in terms of how it has affected the collateral damage to children and families and the rest. But nobody can take away the right of any country to defend itself. It has been brutally attacked in that way. Last week, the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Burrell, wondered aloud why the U.S. isn't doing more to have its warnings taken seriously in Jerusalem. If you believe, he said, that too many people are being killed, maybe you should provide fewer arms in order to prevent so many people being killed. He's got a point, hasn't he? Israel is very well equipped uh, with weaponry. There's nothing that we have sent since October 7th that has, uh, has uh, contributed to this brutality. Uh, in the longer run, it, they're in a dangerous neighborhood, and we will uh, continue to support Israel. I mean, I'm impressed in some ways. Good for Nancy for saying brutality uh, and <laughs> describing Israel's actions. That's a, a big move for Nancy Pelosi. But it's also, I mean, disgusting because she's she's saying two things at once. First, she's saying that we're not providing them with the material with which they are uh, brutalizing Palestinians. But then she's also like, well, we're going to keep supporting them in the long run. Uh, and of course, it's a lie uh, right. because we are supplying the weapons. Uh, there are Israeli officials who say, openly that if we didn't have these weapons we couldn't do what we're doing exactly if we turn off the tap we couldn't carry out this gaza assault so she's just lying uh through her teeth to justify what she claims to have concerns about which is slaughtering children right but it is funny right because she's kind of trying to cover her ass but then totally undoes whatever ass covering attempt she made by saying oh we will be supporting them so She's both pretending that we're not currently supporting their brutality, but we're going to be <laughs> continuing to support them anyway. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, she must be confused because you got to, it must be hard to lie this hard uh, to stare reality in the face and say the opposite with so much conviction. I almost feel bad for these people. I, I, I would feel bad for them if I didn't actually feel like they were genocidal monsters. I feel worse for the Palestinians. Well, at least she didn't tell the interviewer to go back to China like she did to those protesters outside That's her house. That's true. Yeah. Right. That or, accuse her, or accuse him of being paid by Vladimir Putin, which she did right. about other protesters. So yeah, you know, maybe she's improving there. Yeah, that's that's Nancy uh, with her enthusiasm curbed. <laughs> she's curbed her uh, xenophobic enthusiasm. Well, we have another clip of more Democrats sucking. Let's take a look at what was said on MSNBC about Rashida Tlaib daring to encourage people to not vote for Biden during the primary. Let's talk about how the realities of politics works in Washington, D.C. I got a lot of friends and family in Detroit. I care a lot about that proud black community. What up, though, to all the folks in Detroit? 
when Jalen Rose Leadership Academy and Wayne State and Cast Tech don't get the proper appropriations from the Democratic administration, the Democratic president, remember it's because your Democratic congresswoman told them to not vote for the Democratic president in the primary. And she won't have the excuse that, well, I was saying primary, not general. Uh-uh. You don't slap the president in the face and then expect to be treated as a member of the caucus in good standing. And so Rashida Tlaib is not there to represent the squad. She's not there to represent Palestine while there's merit and all those things. You're there to represent your hometown constituency in the city of Detroit. And I will tell all my friends mm -hmm. and family in Detroit that your congresswoman has failed you and frankly embarrassed you. And there could potentially be ramifications. Ooh. Hmm. Wow. So, David, given um, Don trouble. saying that, you know, little concern this could spill over, this advice and this suggestion from Rashida Tlaib could spill over to the general election. How much could the opposition in general from within his own party hurt President Biden in the campaign? To defeat Joe Biden. Kind of sound the optimist. I don't like to be a sourpuss, but if you want to see Donald Trump beat Joe Biden, then you have voices of Charlemagne and Rashida Tlaib questioning Joe Biden's leadership, suggesting he's not fit for re-election. That's how you do it. Democrats beating themselves. I mean, right now, Democrats have been given a historic opportunity with an alliance of independents and disaffected Republicans that showed up with the Democratic coalition in 18 and 20 and 22. And you're telling me going into 2024 that a sitting Democratic congresswoman and a leading voice on the left are going to say, nah, we don't know about our guy. Maybe we shouldn't support him. That's a bunch of hot garbage, Alex. And if those voices don't fall in line, don't expect the coalition to be there in November that you need to defeat Donald Trump. This is really effective. You know why? These are people, I love these types of people. They really care about defeating Trump. So they say the things that are going to be the least convincing things ever to convince people to fall into line. Like, here's some advice. If you want people to fall into line, you don't tell them they need to fall into line. <laughs> Just a pro tip. Yeah, and how dare Rashida Tlaib, because her people are being exterminated. She's Palestinian. How dare she say, I'm not going to support the guy who's exterminating my people. She has to fall right. in line. And if she doesn't, if she dares to oppose a genocide uh, by withholding her vote for the guy facilitating the genocide, then we get a threat from this the first speaker that kids in Detroit, their schools are not going to be funded. So first of all, you, you can't oppose a genocide. And if you do, not only will maybe you get targeted or some retribution, but like the kids in your district, they're not going to get school lunches. Like... It's really, this is politics now? It's even worse than that, because he's threatening to tell his friends and family he's going to snitch. Yeah, well, yes. And he's going to punish children in her district. Children, like, he's talking about kids who can't even vote. Like, they can't even choose who their elected representative. So let's say they, I don't know, disagreed with Rashida Tlaib for some reason, because, I don't know, kids famously are agnostic about genocide. They can't even vote in this election anyway, but they're going to get punished because... The president doesn't like that their Congress member spoke out against his genocide. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it makes, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. And David Jolly is a typical MSNBC uh, guest, of course, because he used to be a Republican. Yeah. So well, that he, qualifies you. Yes. That's who Democrats are now is turning to right. Republicans to tell them to fall into line to vote for, you know, uh, in this case, a guy who's facilitating genocide. But there's a funny irony of this. Mark Ames pointed this out on Twitter that, uh, the poster behind the speaker uh, is of Dick Gregory. And let's click on the picture. The poster is of Dick Gregory's third party run in 1968. So as Mark Ames wow. out, Don Calloway, the speaker here, he's slandering Rashida Tlaib for not supporting uh, the 2024 Democratic Party nominee who happens to be overseeing a genocide. While Maybe having a poster of Dick Gregory, who's like, you know, a known uh, dissident, um, critic of U.S. System. empire, ran for right. as, as a third-party candidate. He has a poster of that behind him. Maybe this is like his attempt. Maybe he's like a hostage, and he put that poster behind him to undermine his message. Maybe someone's forcing <laughs> him to say these things about Rashida Tlaib. Yeah, maybe someone threatened kids in his, in his yeah. district with not having school lunches unless he shield for genocide Joe. So that's what he's doing. But yeah. I, I do love the way he's like, I'm going to tell my friends and family yeah. that it's Rashida Tlaib's fault. Yeah. You know, he has a lot of pull in, in Detroit. He's huge in Detroit, this guy. MSNBC senior snitch analyst. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do we got for Republicans suck? For Republicans suck, easy candidate. Congress member Andy Ogles is his name. He was walking through Congress when 
some people who happen to oppose the mass murder of children and innocents in Gaza with U.S. weapons confronted him. And listen to his response. I've seen, I've seen the footage of, You've seen footage of shredded children's bodies. That's my taxpayer dollars. I'm going, going to bomb those kids. So I think we should kill them all, if that makes you feel better. Everybody, come I had already heard that, but my mouth is open just because it's so shocking. I mean, this is a Congress, and I'm sure he voted for this measure, that censured Rashida Tlaib because she called for Palestine being free from the river to the sea. And this guy is saying we should kill all the Palestinians, including all the children. I think we should kill them all. That was his response, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, this is the policy, basically, of the Biden administration. Is functionally, is he really that different than Joe Biden? who pretends to care about Palestinian children while providing the weapons and the diplomatic cover to kill them. So what he expressed there is U.S. policy. It's a very concise summary of U.S. policy. Kill them all. You're right. I think he's the most honest politician we've heard from on this issue. He's actually stating what America's policy is and what Israel's policy is and what the policy America is enabling. Unbelievable. Just the fact that you could say that out loud. I mean, just for one second, imagine someone saying something comparable about Israelis. Oh, they'd be kicked out of Congress in a second. I mean, immediately. Yeah. And maybe even charged with inciting. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Violence. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. The casual embrace of and acceptance of the dehumanization of Palestinians is really something. Yeah. It's just straight up hatred. And it's so pervasive. It's pretty much mainstream at this point, as this Congress member exemplifies by saying something like that. Yeah, and we talked about this when we had Dennis Kucinich on because he's running against someone who said that Gaza had to be flattened and turned into a parking lot. Yes, Max Miller, another uh, open bigot. Yeah. There's a lot of them. Unbelievable. This should be a career-ending moment, and I don't think it will be. Absolutely. Absolutely. So many things should be career-ending. You know, by the way, as we're recording this, it just came out that U.S. intelligence has basically undermined the Biden administration's claims about UNRWA, the Palestinian Refugee Agency. And, and we covered this recently on the show where Israel came out and said that a uh, handful of UNRWA staffers took part in the October 7th attack. And then they said that 10% of all of UNRWA staffers have ties to Hamas, which even if true actually doesn't mean anything because ties is a pretty ambiguous term. And Hamas is the government in Gaza, right. so it wouldn't be surprising if people have unspecified ties to it. But on this claim that this handful of staffers took part in October 7th, U.S. intelligence has just come out and said, actually, we have low confidence in that. Uh, and that means they have no evidence for it. Right. And this is the same allegation that Tony Blinken took immediately and said it's highly, highly credible. So that, highly. that also should be a career-ending moment for Tony Blinken. Yep. He parroted an Israeli claim that even his own intelligence – has just poured cold water on. And what was the result of that? They suspended funding to UNRWA anyway, uh, thereby further uh, depriving desperate refugees uh, and further and making it more difficult for the people who provide them with the things they need to stay alive to do their jobs. So yeah, more people died because of that decision. Like they killed, that decision killed Palestinians concretely and directly defunding UNRWA. Meanwhile, we have Israeli soldiers literally documenting their crimes. And nothing happens to them. But if the Israeli government alleges without a shred of evidence that UNRWA people did something wrong, not it's not just that they're investigated. It's not that they're fired, disciplined. It's that the entire thing is defunded. All right. So isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? We have another plane-based story. Let's take a look at this video. It's about someone who got thrown off a plane, but not for the reason we usually cover on the show, which is, of course, alcohol-related, mostly because Aaron scours the news looking for those stories <laughs> because he's a propagandist <laughs> traveler booted from flight after excessive bathroom use canadian author joanna chu rage tweeted about the her crappy experience on a recent WestJet flight from mexico just got kicked off a WestJet flight from mexico because i had an upset stomach and was going to the washroom too much before takeoff no promise of a hotel or rebooked flight i had meds and was on the mend some customer service if you're sick before flight hold it in so I don't know. That is a tough call, I guess. I mean, you shouldn't be punished for having a bad stomach, but I do think it's kind of irresponsible for her to say, keep it in. Uh, yes. Uh, also, I mean, 
impossible too. Yes, it's possible. And I mean, if you're gonna say that, like, try to practice what you preach. I mean, would she be able to? Exactly. I mean, right. I, I don't think so. And I mean, you know, she's yeah. basically just called for like ex- ex- seat-bound explosive diarrhea. That's that's that like it does sound like what she's advocating, and also okay. just you know, alternatively, just just take another flight. You know, yeah, there are flights regularly now in this modern world, right? Um, and if she did have a stomach bug, I, I'm sympathetic to the argument that yeah, that could have been a risk to other people, and so therefore it was fair not to it's allow true. her on. Yeah, you know, so she's not she's again. We find not a lot of heroes in flights. Not a lot of heroes. A lot it's of drinkers, tough. and in this case, not even a bathroom hog. That's not the issue. It's a a selfish sicky. Yes, a selfish sicky. Selfish sicky. Yes. Yeah. I had food poisoning once before a flight from Mexico, and it was that was a challenge. What'd you do? I took the flight, and uh, I I powered through, but it was not fun. It was not yeah. fun. Yeah, it was not fun. Were you able to stay in your seat like for most of it, or were you up and down a lot? I w- I was. Uh, I believe I might have thrown up in the bathroom okay. a couple times. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Uh, well, you must have been stealth about it. Yes. Because you didn't get kicked off. I wasn't kicked off. No, I was not kicked off. Yeah. Yes. I once had something with both. I, I'm not going to get into it. I, I once had a difficult train experience. I'll just leave it at that. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, so did I when I was kicked off the train for questioning Sandra Chris Coons. Right. You know? You're right. I shouldn't even say that. That yeah. I feel so insensitive for saying my stomach problems. Um and making a mess in a train car. I, I shouldn't have said that was probably very triggering for you to hear, Aaron, mm. as someone who had real pain on a on a train. You know, I'll share a little secret. I took the train for the first time since that experience the other day. And uh it was the same train. And so I perused the quiet car just to see if by chance a lawmaker like Senator Coons was there, but afraid not. Huh. No, no, but you were okay. It didn't. It wasn't too uh, traumatic. I was disappointed. I was disappointed. I was disappointed. I, you know, okay. it was, it's be, you know, I was thinking, wouldn't it be cool if it's like every time I, th- I take the train, I see some politician, and I get right. to film, I get to film them uh, being, you know, asking them about their support for genocide, and that would Gaza. be great. That'd be nice if I could make that a, tri- a montage. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What do we got for? Isn't that terrible? For isn't that terrible? We're gonna turn to John Stewart. Uh, he is back at the anchor desk for the Daily Show. I'm personally as a fan of his. Very happy about that. I think he's got real talent. He's great at that job. I'm not. He a did fan. a good thing of of Biden. He good good job mocking Biden. He did a great job mocking Biden. But this week, after getting a lot of heat from liberals for his criticism of Biden and how out of touch Biden is, John Stewart came back and basically uh, did a long segment making fun of Tucker Carlson for interviewing Vladimir Putin. And fair enough. There's a lot of material in there to make fun of, uh, and it's fair game. Uh, including Tucker also going to like a Russian supermarket to marvel at how uh, cheap the groceries were in comparison to the U.S. But in the process, John Stewart, I think, went a little bit too far. And it looks sounds to me like he was basically trying to compensate for angering liberals for criticizing the dear leader, Joe Biden, because listen to him here attacking Tucker Carlson for uh, praising the Russian system while also offering what I thought was a really strange defense of the U.S. system uh, on John Stewart's part. So here he is. Right. Because the difference between our urinal caked chaotic subways and your candelabra beautiful subways is the literal price of freedom. But the goal that Carlson and his ilk are pushing is that there's really no difference between our systems. In fact, theirs might be a little bit better. The question is, why? Why is Tucker doing this? Here's why. It's because the old civilizational battle was communism versus capitalism. That's what drove the world since World War II. Russia was the enemy then. But now they think the battle is woke versus unwoke. And in that fight, Putin is an ally to the right. He's their friend. Unfortunately, he is also a brutal and ruthless dictator. So now they have to make Americans a little more comfortable with that. I mean, liberty is nice, but have you seen Russia's shopping carts? <laughs> and Tucker would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those meddling assassins. In a statement to The New York Times, Carlson said, quote, it is horrifying what happened to Navalny. The whole thing is barbaric and awful. No decent person would defend it. Correct. 
No decent person would. All right, John Stewart. I mean, can we get a little bit more nuance here? It's a little like he's saying that our decaying infrastructure is the price of freedom. So what does that mean? Like, is he saying that we have to put up with not having proper infrastructure in this country because the price of freedom is spending all of our money on the military industrial complex? Right. Is yeah. that really what that's he, freedom, that really that's liberty and democracy? Yeah. yeah. And he makes a point about, you know, how conservatives or, or whatever you want to call Tucker Carlson uh, have embraced Russia because of this whole woke, anti-woke thing. I mean, there's some truth to that. Like yeah. Russia is Christian Orthodox, you know, Putin says and has done disparaging things to LGBTQ people. So there's some truth to that. But I don't think it's just about that. Um, Tucker Carlson also has critiqued militarism uh, in ways that mainstream Democrats now don't anymore. And um, when he talks about Russia and he talks about Ukraine, there is a critique of militarism in there. I don't think you can say just about like wokeism. I think it's as I think it's pretty reductive. And it's like that's as reductive as the Republicans and the conservatives who do make things all about woke and not woke. But I just don't think you can put Tucker Carlson, who actually does critique U.S. militarism. What else? Whatever else you think of all his other views, and you know, of course, many of which I I don't share, especially on on immigration. But uh, I don't know. I think I think John Stewart. I think that was a stretch, and it was disappointing to see because he's a, obviously a very bright guy. Yeah, I mean, my problem was just how stupid what he was saying about the cost of freedom was. I don't even. I just think that makes no sense, and it implies that our government is spending money on things that keep us safe and are for our freedoms that was just i that's so uh imbecilic and it makes no sense yes it is and it's like does he even believe that if you were to ask yeah him, i don't think so yeah 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 i mean he was a critic of the iraq war would he say yeah. that that was to for our freedom and if you can have that critique about the iraq war can you maybe apply that to other wars as well committed by the same people for the same right. reasons really unfortunate yeah so that's john stewart after you know a good start being terrible. And those have been your four basic food groups. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. For this week's guest, we are joined by one of the most influential political scientists in the world. John Mearsheimer is the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, has influenced political science scholarship around the world for a long time now and is known for his heterodox views on many issues, including the Ukraine proxy war, and now also uh, the, the Gaza conflict, where he wrote a seminal book about the influence of the Israel lobby on U.S. politics. He co-wrote that with Stephen Walt, which has new relevance today uh, as we're seeing Israel-Palestine uh, continue to dominate U.S. politics and you know cast a really major shadow over the upcoming election. So we're going to talk to John Mearsheimer about all that and more. So this is John Mearsheimer. Welcome and thank you so much for joining my pleasure to be here. I wanted to start off by asking you a kind of maybe nerdy question, but you are, of course, of the realism school. And I've heard you uh, a lot of your lectures and you like to kind of frame the terms of debate or terms of discussion. So I want to know for people who don't know what that means, what does that mean? And what other kinds of schools are there that other political scientists are from? Well, in the political science world, and I think this is true in the United States and the West more generally, there are sort of two bodies of theory that inform how people think about the world. Uh, one of the realists uh, and the other group are the liberals. And I'm clearly a realist. And realists basically believe that great power politics is the dominating feature of international relations and that the United States should not be involved in small wars all over the world. So it's no accident that almost all the realists uh, 
focus on China's rise and care about China's rise, although there are differences of opinions among realists on how to deal with China. But given the realist focus on great power politics, we tend to focus laser-like on the rise of China. And with regard to wars in places like Iraq, Vietnam, Afghanistan, we think it's disastrous for the United States to fight these wars. Uh, the liberals, on the other hand, because they essentially have a crusader mentality, are interested not only in great power politics, but they're interested in running around the world and trying to turn countries into liberal democracies at the end of a rifle barrel. So what you see in the United States, at least since the end of the Cold War, when great power politics disappeared because the Soviet Union disappeared, is that the United States uh, decided that it was going to pursue this policy of liberal hegemony, where it went around the world uh, trying to promote democracy, oftentimes at the end of a rifle barrel. It tried to uh, integrate all sorts of countries into the liberal international order uh, and so forth and so on. And realists were just much more skeptical about using military power to promote democracy. In fact, most realists are not interested in promoting democracy uh, in other countries. They tend to respect the sovereignty of other states. And as you both well know, the United States does not respect the sovereignty of other states. We think we have a God-given right to intervene in the politics of every country on the planet. And that basically comes from the real, excuse me, from the liberal impulse that's uh, sort of hardwired into the body politic. So I think in a nutshell, uh, that's what separates the realists from the liberals. And as I said initially, I think the realists and the liberals are the two big schools of thought uh, in the United States. Let's talk about the Ukraine proxy war. As we're recording this, we're on the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. Uh, one year ago, the mood was very different in the West. Uh, there was a sort of feeling of triumphalism. Uh, Ukraine had recently captured, uh, uh, retaken two key provinces from Russia. Uh, they were gearing up for a counteroffensive encouraged by the US. This year, we've just had the Munich Security Conference, the annual gathering of the NATO foreign policy elite. And the mood was very different, where things are feeling bleak. Uh, Ukraine just lost a very key town of Abdivka, dire reports from the front lines. Republicans in the House are stalling a new $61 billion request by President Biden to prolong the proxy war. What is your assessment of where things are at? Well, I think that the Ukrainians are obviously in terrible shape. I think that, as you point out, the balance of power has shifted uh, over the past year in quite significant ways. And I believe that moving forward, the balance of power between the Ukrainians on one side and Russians on the other side will shift further to the Russians' advantage. So Russia's position will improve militarily over time. And that just means that the Ukrainians, if they continue to fight this war, will lose even more territory. And all this talk in the West about, you know, rearming the Ukrainians um, and uh, having them go back on the offensive and take back the territory that they lost is simply delusional. Uh, as I say, the balance of power, if anything, is going to shift against Ukraine over time. And they are, in effect, doomed. And the only question at this point in time that I think is interesting is how much territory Ukraine ends up losing. Uh, if I were in the driver's seat in Kiev, what I would do is try and reach some sort of agreement now uh, and accept the fact that the Russians are going to keep the four oblasts that they've annexed and also keep the Crimea and do everything I can to prevent them from taking the next four oblasts to the, that are to the west of the four oblasts they've already taken. That would include Kharkiv and Odessa. Uh, but uh, I, I think what you want to do if you're a Ukrainian at this point in time is minimize the damage uh, and accept the fact that you're just not going to get those four oblasts plus Crimea back. But this is not the way they're thinking, and it's certainly not the way people in the West are thinking. So what we're doing, and of course, this does not include the three of us, but what the country, the United States is doing, the Biden administration is doing, is encouraging uh, the Ukrainians to fight on. Uh, 
by feeding this line that they can eventually win, which, as I say, is misguided in the extreme. You have Russians like Medvedev saying now that we need to take Kiev. Do you think that is a reflection of Putin's goal, or is this possibly Medvedev in the role of bad cop to other Russians, good cop, who might be more amenable to a negotiated settlement that doesn't see Russia take over all of Ukraine, a, a goal that you've been very skeptical of from the start. Uh, you've argued that Russia never intended to absorb all of Ukraine, as many uh, supporters of the proxy war in the West will claim. Yeah, it's very important to emphasize that there is zero evidence that Putin has any interest in conquering any country outside of Ukraine. And I believe there is zero evidence that he has any interest in conquering all of Ukraine. And indeed, there's an abundance of evidence that he doesn't want to conquer the Western part of Ukraine. Let's just call it the Western half of Ukraine. And in fact, if you listen to him talk uh, these days, he talks about Poland, Hungary, and Romania retaking the parts of Western Ukraine that used to belong to them. He raises this specter. And all of this just makes clear, he's not taking that territory for Russia. And of course, he would be crazy to do that because the further West you move into Ukraine, the more you run into territory that's occupied uh, by ethnic Ukrainians almost all ethnic Ukrainians who hate the Russians. And he surely understands that if he occupies that territory, he's going to have a major insurrection on his hands. And that's the last thing he needs. He's much better off just taking a wide swath of territory in the eastern part of Ukraine, where there are lots of ethnic Russians and lots of Russian speakers, and annexing that to Russia. Uh, and all of the evidence is that that is what he plans to do. Now, whether he takes Kiev is hard to say for sure. I would actually be surprised if they took all of Kiev. They might take the part that's on the eastern bank of the Dnieper, but I don't think they'll take all of it. The problem that you run into is conquering a large city like Kiev is a major undertaking. Uh, the cost would be enormous for the Russians. And then you own a city that's going to be filled with people who don't like you uh, owning their city and will resist. So I think that they'll leave Kiev alone. It will remain the capital of a dysfunctional Ukrainian rump state. Uh, but nevertheless, they will take lots of other territory. Uh, I mean, if I were playing Russia's hand, I'd try to take all of Odessa. I'd try to take all of Kharkiv. I'd take a lot of territory. What you want to do if you're Russia is you want to weaken Ukraine as much as you can. And the reason that you want to do that is because once you get a cold peace, and you'll eventually get a cold peace, you're not going to get a meaningful peace agreement here because the Americans and the Ukrainians won't agree to a meaningful peace agreement. You're going to get a cold peace. And when you have a cold peace, the United States and the Ukrainians will go to great lengths over time to undermine Russia's position in the territories that it's annexed. They'll try to cause all the trouble they can for the Russians. And the Russians, of course, will try to cause all sorts of trouble for that rump state that becomes Ukraine or that is Ukraine. And they'll try to cause all sorts of trouble in Europe the Russians will. And I don't blame them one bit if I were playing their hand. But anyway, all of this is to say, if you're playing their hand, you have a vested interest in grabbing a lot of Ukrainian territory, as much as you can. And this is why I said a few minutes ago that from Ukraine's point of view, uh, it makes sense to cut a deal now and prevent the Russians from taking more territory. And to prevent them from taking more territory, you have to eliminate the incentive for them wanting to do that. And the only way that you can eliminate that incentive is if you agree that you will not join NATO, that indeed there will be no strategic relationship, military relationship between the West and Ukraine, and Ukraine will be a genuine neutral state. 
if you can convince the Russians that you're willing to do that, and then you take the necessary steps to do that, I think you can minimize the amount of territory that they'll take. But if you don't do that, and I think we're not going to see the Ukrainians do that, the end result is that they have a powerful incentive to take as much territory as they can militarily and to take as much territory as they can without ending up with lots of ethnic Ukrainians in their midst. Let me put you a counter argument that I think someone from the Ukrainian government or a supporter in the West of the proxy war might make. They might say that, well, look, Russia's failure to take places like Odessa so far and Russia's struggles in taking places like Avdivka and Bakhmut, which Russia took, but at a considerable cost of people, shows that uh, Russia is not as strong as everybody thought. And the, these experiences show that Russia can't take all of our countries, so let's just keep fighting on. What do you think of that argument? And, and do you think that argument understands what Russia's strategy has been so far? Well, there's two points. First of all, what's the point of fighting on? Uh, if, if you believe the Russians can't take more territory, that you have a stalemate, uh, and you can't launch an offensive to take back the territory you lost, there's no point in fighting on. Just cut a deal. It, it just makes common sense. That no, was Mark Milley's position over a year ago, the, the former chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That was his stance, but unfortunately, he was overruled. Exactly. I mean, Milley understood that in the fall of 2022, remember the war starts February 24th, 2022. Uh, and by the fall of 2022, uh, the Ukrainians have done quite well for themselves against the Russians. And Milley says, in effect, that this is the high water mark. We got to cut a deal. And uh, uh, the White House and the foreign policy establishment more generally say, oh, no, now's not the time to cut a deal. We have the Russians on the run and uh, let's uh, finish them off. Let's win a big victory in Ukraine. But this is, of course, crazy because what's happening inside of Russia at that point in time is that Putin is finally beginning to mobilize the economy and mobilize troops and take advantage of the fact that Russia has a great advantage in producing weaponry over Ukraine and the West. And furthermore, it has about a five to one advantage in manpower, which means it could put many more troops on the battlefield than the Ukrainians do. Milley surely understood this and surely understand, understood that it was time to quit while you're ahead. But that was not the way we saw it. And we pushed on. And here we are today in the wake of the counteroffensive. What happened with the counteroffensive uh, cannot be underestimated because that demonstrated that the Ukrainians could not launch an offensive to take back the territory they've lost. There's no way they can do it. So the only interesting question now is whether or not the Ukrainians can hold on to what they have. And in your question, you were implying that they could. And I said, well, if they can hold on to the territory that they now have over the next 10 years, why not just cut a deal now? Because you would save a lot of lives. Uh, it's the smart thing to do. The problem, uh, Aaron, is I don't think that the Ukrainians can hold on to that territory. Uh, if you look at what's going on on the battlefield, Avdivka, uh, uh, for example, what happened there, it's beginning to look like the Ukrainian army is unraveling. There are real problems. The, the final stages of the Battle of Avdivka were really uh, a total disaster uh, for the Ukrainians. They uh, had uh, troops that had just quit their positions and were running away. Uh, some estimates are that a thousand Ukrainian troops were captured by the Russians. Um, and the situation looks bleak. And again, I may be wrong on this. There's no question about that. Maybe the Russians don't have the capability to move much beyond Avdivka, but, uh, but I think they do. Uh, and if they do, you want to cut a deal now. There's a certain irony in the fact that people like you are smeared as Putin puppets, right? Then other people, the people who smear you, are people who compare Putin to Hitler and claim to be uh, defending and protecting Ukrainians, but they are also 
actually prolonging a war, which is not just bleeding Russia, which is their overt aim, but bleeding Ukrainians. So what is actually going on? What is their real motivation? Well, there's two things that are going on. As I like to say, when I was a little boy, my mother always taught me when you can't beat beat people with facts and logic, what you do is smear them. Uh, you saw this with regard to Tucker Carlson and the interview with Vladimir Putin. Very little attention was paid to analyzing the facts and analyzing what Putin had to say and how it uh, played out in, in the context of this war. Instead, what people focused on was smearing uh, both Carlson uh, and Putin. Uh, and this is just the way things operate in the West. So I've gotten to the point where I'm sort of an armadillo. I just, you know, it doesn't bother me at all anymore because it's just the way the game is played. It's sad because it's not the way uh, things are supposed to work in a liberal democracy, but that's uh, where we are. But what's really going on here, in my opinion, is I think that the foreign policy establishment, the mainstream media, which is back this war almost to a person, has a deep-seated interest in having Ukraine win. Uh, it will be a humiliating defeat uh, if the Ukrainians lose and Putin wins. The foreign policy establishment and the mainstream media are doubling down now and doing everything they can to prolong this war. And it's easy to do that because they're not doing the fighting and the dying. And actually, if you listen to some people uh, in the establishment talk, they make that point. It's the Ukrainians who are doing the fighting and dying. Uh, and in the process, they're wearing down the Russians. But in my opinion, it's not so important that they wear down the Russians. What's important to the people in the foreign policy establishment and the media is that the Ukrainians help to rescue their reputation. Because again, otherwise, they're not only going to have a lot of egg on their face for being dead wrong, they're also going to have a lot of blood on their hands. Because when this one is finally over with and everybody steps back and looks at what's happened, they're going to say, this is a giant catastrophe. It is just hard to believe how bad the consequences are, how widespread and how negative the consequences are of this Ukraine war. And for people who argued that this could have been avoided if we had just given up on turning Ukraine into a Western bastion on Russia's border, right, we're going to look like we were right. And we don't have blood on our hands. We were not the ones who pushed the Ukrainians into this horrendous war. It's the foreign policy establishment and the mainstream media that pushed them and made the argument that they could win. Just to take another example that deals with this very point, look at what happened immediately after the war started. In March and early April, you had negotiations in Istanbul, and it looked like the war was going to be settled then. But what happened? Boris Johnson and the Americans came in and told Zelensky to walk not to continue the negotiations, which looked like they were going to bear fruit. We told Zelensky, continue the fight instead of negotiating a settlement at this point in time. He, of course, did that. Then to go back to the point that Aaron raised about General Milley in the fall of 2022, when Milley wanted to shut the war down because he understood that things were only going to get worse, the foreign policy establishment, the mainstream media dissed that idea and the war went on. So you see that the American foreign policy establishment, uh, and this includes uh, its allies in Europe and it includes the mainstream media, uh, is the principal driving force behind this war. Uh, it was not the Ukrainians who wanted to join NATO. We came up with the idea in April 2008. At that point in time, the Ukrainians were deeply committed to neutrality. And what we did was we pushed hard uh, for many years to bring Ukraine into NATO. And when the Russians protested, we basically gave them the high sign. We told them we didn't care. We were going to shove it down their throats. Uh, and the end result is you have this disastrous war. So the foreign policy establishment and the mainstream media have a deep-seated interest in hoping that the Ukrainians uh, can pull a rabbit out of a hat and uh, can win this war and rescue their reputations. 
But what motivates them in the first place to support this war? So I understand you're saying now it's to, to save face and they're hoping that, that Ukraine can turn it around. But why are they in the first place in support of this? I, I think they thought they could win. Right. It, just if you go back to March, April, after the war started, well, let's let's do this. Let's go to the period between December 17th, 2021. This is when the Russians sent the letter to President Biden and to Jens Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, uh, proposing some sort of deal, uh, pro pro proposing setting up some meetings to work out a deal so that you could avoid uh, conflict. Uh, from that point, December 17th, 2021, up until when the war started a few months later on February 24th, 2022, uh, the Russians went to great lengths to try and avoid a conflict. They did not want a war. And we refused to play the game. We refused to engage with them. We just told them to take a hike. And we were saying at the time, as I'm sure both of you remember, that there's going to be a war. There's going to be a war. We were running around with a bullhorn telling Zelensky and others, there's going to be a war. There's going to be a war. Well, you would expect if that was the case at the same time, we would have been trying to do something to avoid a war. We did virtually nothing to avoid a war. Uh, then the war breaks out. And uh, as we were saying before, what's going on? in March and early April is that the Russians and the Ukrainians are negotiating in Istanbul, and it looks like they're going to work out some sort of agreement. Uh, and by the way, they were also, the Russians and the Ukrainians, uh, working with Naftali Bennett, who was the Israeli prime minister at the time. And things were proceeding on the Naftali Bennett track in the same way that they were proceeding on the Istanbul track which is to say quite well. And it looked like you were going to get an agreement. But what happened is that the Americans and the British came in and told Zelensky to walk. And as I said to you before, I think it's because we thought that we could beat the Russians. We thought the Russians were very weak and we could just slap them around and, uh, uh, and they would just have to swallow NATO expansion. And if they started a conflict, we would beat them. You want to remember that we make the decision in the mid-1990s to expand NATO, and the Russians scream bloody murder from the get-go. But we shoved NATO expansion down their throat in 1999, which is the first big tranche. Then in 2004, we shoved the second big tranche down their throat. And then in April 2008, we decide there's going to be a third tranche, which involves Georgia and Ukraine. Uh, and even after the war in Georgia breaks out, a few months after the April 2008 NATO decision, you would have thought that the Americans would back off with regard to Ukraine. Look what happened in Georgia. Maybe we ought to rethink this. But no, we doubled down and we just thought we could shove it down their throats. And this is what informed our thinking, in my opinion, before February 24th, 2022. And then we thought we were going to win after that. And again, it's not until recently that we began to realize that this was delusional. And in fact, the Russians uh, are likely to win uh, what I would call an ugly victory. Uh, but what are we doing again? We're doubling down. And it's easy to do that because we're not paying the blood price. It's the Ukrainians who are paying the blood price. And if I could just say one other thing about that while I'm on stream of consciousness mode here. You know, if you read the articles in the newspaper about the demographic situation in Ukraine, it's sometimes said that Ukraine is a country that is in a demographic death spiral. Just think about those words. Ukraine is in a demographic death spiral. The last thing that Ukraine needs at this point in time is to suffer hundreds and thousands of deaths, uh, which it's already suffered, and then to suffer more and more moving forward. I mean, I don't, this may be too strong a word, but this is insanity. I just kind of don't understand what people are thinking, both from a human rights or a moral point of view, as well as from a strategic point of view. Our policy is bankrupt, both morally and strategically. And it's just motivated by a desire for hegemony? Well, it was initially motivated by a desire uh, to spread liberal democracy, uh, 
eastward uh, to spread our institutions like the EU and NATO eastward uh, to get Eastern European countries hooked on capitalism. It was the basic uh, liberal hegemony policy that dominated during the unipolar moment. But then when the Russians began to resist, it became a policy that was designed to badly weaken Russia and knock Russia out of the ranks of the great powers. Uh, and this is what we thought we could do. We thought we would really damage Russia. Uh, and instead of being in a multipolar world now where you have three great powers, Russia, China, and the United States, we would be in a bipolar world where Russia was no longer a great power and the only two great powers were China and the United States. So you have this very interesting situation, which is that the more Putin resisted, the more committed we became to wrecking Russia. Uh, and the truth is that Putin actually did not resist very much between 2000 and I would argue even the fall of 2022. This is after the war started. And if you listen to Putin now talk, he says that he made a mistake in trusting the West for too long. And I thought that was true when it was happening. I thought before the war broke out in February 2022 and after it broke out, he trusted the West too much. In my opinion, the United States is a ruthless great power. The Russians should never trust the Americans. No country on the planet should trust the Americans. Uh, I wouldn't trust any great power for that matter. Uh, this is the realist uh, streak in me. But uh, anyway, Putin did. And because Putin was not as hard-nosed as one might have expected, the Americans thought they could push him around. And uh, the more he pushed back, over time, uh, the more committed we became uh, to wrecking Russia. Uh, and uh, I, I think in the end, uh, we, uh, we have failed. In a recent interview, Putin specifically called out Angela Merkel of Germany and Francois Hollande of France, uh, both of whom have admitted that the Minsk Accords, which was uh, the peace accord signed in February 2015 to end the war in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, which began after the 2014 Maidan coup, they admitted that the Minsk Accords were just used to buy time to prepare Ukraine to fight Russia, not to actually end the war. And Putin is obviously very bitter about that. And you know, on that point, there are so many admissions now from NATO officials, from Ukrainian officials, and from Western pundits that back up the argument you've just given us on, on the background to this war. So I want to play just a, a few clips just to illustrate. The first clip is Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General. And he recently admitted that Russia went to war in Ukraine because it wanted to stop NATO encroachment on its borders. The background was that President Putin declared in the autumn of 2021, and he actually sent a, a draft treaty that he wanted NATO to sign to promise no more NATO enlargement. That was what, what he sent us. And that was, that, that was a precondition for not invade uh, 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 Ukraine. Of course, we didn't sign that. The opposite happened. He wanted us to sign a promise never to enlarge NATO. He wanted us to remove our military infrastructure in, in all allies that have joined NATO since 1997, meaning half of NATO, all the Central and Eastern Europe. We should remove NATO uh, from, from that part of, uh, of our alliance, introducing some kind of E and B, or second-class membership. We rejected that. So he went to war to prevent uh, uh, NATO, uh, more NATO close to his borders, he has, he, he has got the exact opposite. And then we have, you know, fast forwarding to these critical peace talks you've discussed that occurred in Turkey in March, April 2022, where they were so close to signing a deal, Russia and Ukraine, but Boris Johnson came over and told Zelensky that the West would not have his back if he signed those deals. This is a Ukrainian diplomat named Alexander Chali, sorry if I pronounced his name wrong, uh, who took part in the talks. And he said, that Putin did everything possible to find a peaceful settlement with Ukraine. I was in that moment in the group of Ukrainian negotiators. We negotiated uh, with Russian delegation practically two months, in March and April, the possible peaceful settlement agreement with, between Ukraine and Russia. And we, as you remember, concluded so-called Istanbul communique. And we were very close. 
in the middle of April, in the end of April, to finalize our war with some peaceful settlement. For some reasons, it was postponed. But to my mind, Putin, this is my personal view, Putin in one week after started his aggression in 24 February last year, very quickly understood he did mistake and tried to do everything possible to conclude agreement with Ukraine. And Istanbul communique, it was his personal decision to accept the text of this communique, which totally far away from the initial proposal of Russia, ultimatum proposal of Russia, which they put before the Ukrainian delegation in Minsk. So we managed to find a very real compromise. So Putin really wanted to reach some peaceful settlement with Ukraine. It's very important to remember. So much for a Hitlerian march. <laughs> I noticed how he says for some reason this deal was postponed. He doesn't detail why, which is that Boris Johnson came over and told Zelensky that the West wouldn't support it and that Ukraine should keep fighting Russia. And just one more clip. John, you mentioned how people in the West brag now that the, that Ukrainian lives are cheap, that we're basically they're dying on our behalf. A person to recently lay that out is the editor of The Economist, a very influential magazine, Zanny Mitten-Beddoes, speaking to Jon Stewart. To be clear, aiding Ukraine, giving the money to Ukraine, is the cheapest possible way for the U.S. to enhance its security. It's just, it's absolutely, the fighting is being done by the Ukrainians. They're the people who are being killed. The U.S. And, and Europe are supplying them weapons. And in doing so, we are pushing back against Putin. I mean, it... I've been to Kiev twice right. and, and lived there 30 years ago. And you can't go there and not think this is a European country that is looking westward. And for the U.S. to abandon it now, if it does, it's almost jaw dropping. So, John, we just heard, you know, all these admissions um, from these voices from the West, these prominent voices, basically, you know, underscoring the points that you've made. But yet for some reason, you know, you know, admissions like this don't make a dent it seems to me, in the narrative that Western media consumers are getting about this war? Well, I do believe they make a dent. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at public opinion polls uh, in the United States and in Europe, um, there is a recent poll produced by the European Council on Foreign Relations that shows that only 10% of Europeans think that Ukraine can win the war. And the Quincy Institute has just released a poll that shows that only 12% of Americans think that Ukraine can win the war. What you have here is a real disjuncture between what the elites think and what the publics think. This is an elite-driven war. The elites are deeply committed to this war. But we have a whole plethora of alternative media platforms that all sorts of people watch. And I believe the word has gotten out to the public as to what's going on in Ukraine. The problem is that the elite media, right, keeps people like us, for the most part, out of the discussion. And therefore, the elite is, in a sense, talking to itself. And they just go back and forth purveying the conventional wisdom. And it seems like the truth is not getting out. But the fact is that shows like your show and all sorts of other shows that are out there are getting the word out there. And it is having an effect in the public. But the problem, again, is the elites are so deeply committed to this war that they just can't turn around. They have to keep pushing forward. And this is what you see happening. So I, I think that uh, uh, you don't want to just simply say that the word is not getting out and people are not changing their minds. It's the elite that, that is the problem. But I just want to say a few words about those clips that you showed. First of all, the Stoltenberg clip is truly amazing. Stoltenberg is making the argument that people like us have made from the get-go, which is this is not a war about conquest. This is not a war where Putin is trying to create a greater Russia. He says very clearly that this is all about NATO expansion. It's a very articulate, from my point of view, it's a very articulate uh, enunciation of 
my view on what caused the war. And it's coming from Jens Stoltenberg. Quite amazing. Uh, with regard to the ambassador, of course, he's exactly right. Uh, he's he, he's reporting what has now become the conventional wisdom among most people outside of the foreign policy establishment. And with regard to the editor of The Economist, uh, I mean, she should really step back and think about the moral dimension of her comments. I mean, it's really kind of horrifying to think that somebody in that position is so cavalier in her treatment of Ukrainian lives. And just a quick point before we before we move on to Gaza, the other major conflict in this in this world, um, the 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 existence of these peace talks in March and April two thousand twenty two, and the admission there from that Ukrainian official that they were so close to a peace deal, it doesn't get reported in Western media. And I just wonder how long it will take. Will it take until we get the internal documents from the U.S. confirming <laughs> that they sabotaged? Uh, these peace talks, is that how long it will take for the Western media to just acknowledge that they happened? Because it's very difficult, uh, in at least in the U.S., to find any kind of acknowledgement that these talks took place and they were so close to a deal. Yeah, I, I'm not very hopeful on that front. Uh, I, I think my views are kind of similar to yours. Uh, I, I don't see uh, the media doing much of a turnaround. I mean, where the media has to do a turnaround is in terms of reporting what's going on in the battlefield. And if you read the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, you are now seeing, I'd say twice a week in each one of those newspapers, a story that reports uh, the dire straits that the Ukrainian army is in up on the front lines. And you even are beginning to see stories about uh, the political turmoil inside of Kiev. Uh, they just can't deny that. But when you start talking about historical instances like what happened back in March slash April 2022, uh, I think they can still uh, do a pretty good job of hiding that. Uh, the whole business about Minsk is another example. There's been very little discussion in the mainstream media of the fact that uh, Angela Merkel, Francois Hollande, and and, uh, and Poroshenko, who was the Ukrainian president at the time, at the time, basically bamboozled Putin. And Putin, of course, was operating in good faith. He made the mistake of trusting those Western elites, and they took him to the cleaners. Uh, but uh, you don't hear much about that. And in fact, when you talk to people in the establishment about that case, they will tell you that Merkel uh, and Hollande really don't believe that. That's not really what happened. Mm -hmm. They're just making this up now. Uh, and in fact, the principal reason that Minsk didn't work was because of Putin. And this is exactly what you'd expect from the mainstream media or from the foreign policy establishment. Putin is responsible for all things that have gone wrong. We're the good guys. He's the bad guy. Uh, as Katie pointed out on a number of occasions, he's the equivalent of Adolf Hitler uh, and so forth and so on. So that's kind of where we are. I would offer a, a third possibility that actually, yes, Merkel and Hollande did not mean what they say when they said that Minsk was a ruse. They actually tried to implement Minsk, but the people who stood in the way were actually Ukrainian ultranationalists who threatened Zelensky's life if he implemented Minsk and held violent protests against it, and their allies in Washington, D.C., that actually Merkel was sincere, but is now pretending that she was playing along with the charade of Minsk all along because now it's not fashionable to support diplomacy with Russia. That's, that's my speculation. I think you may be right. Uh, and by the way, we know that Merkel and Sarkozy, who was the French president uh, in 2008, both Merkel and Sarkozy were opposed to uh, NATO expansion into Ukraine at the famous Bucharest summit. And in fact, Merkel has subsequently said that the reason she was opposed was she understood, and this is really quite remarkable, that Putin would interpret that decision as a declaration of war against Russia. Really quite remarkable. But you couldn't stop the Americans. That was the problem. So shifting gears to another war, or I mean, I don't know if you can even call it war. You can call it maybe a massacre. I know you've referred to it in the past as, as a massacre and others are calling it genocide. What is motivating the United States support for Israel's brutal assault on Gaza? 
And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. That was a great discussion. That was a comprehensive interview. We covered a lot of topics. A lot of ground. John has done such important work, has been repeatedly vindicated. I mean, wrote very early on when it wasn't easy to about the role of the Israel lobby. And I have to admit, I was very sympathetic to the Chomsky view back then that the influence of the lobby was being exaggerated. But I can't argue with Mearsheimer and Walt anymore on that. And also on Ukraine, he was the one who said in 2014, the Ukraine crisis is the West's fault. And he also said that the West was leading Ukraine on the primrose path and that Ukraine was going to get wrecked. And he proved to be exactly right. So how grateful uh, are we to be able to get John Mearsheimer's insight on all these topics, uh, Ukraine and Gaza at this awful time for the world? Yeah. And some interesting insights into his personal journey. Yes. And, you know, he said something that I thought was really notable. He talked about how you should never say the anyone, especially, you know, the Jews. And that reminded me of Dave Chappelle's joke from SNL where he said, you know, if I know one thing in show, but I'm paraphrasing, if I know one thing and working in show business, you never say these two words together, the Jews. And yeah. uh, we can't play the clip because of copyright issues, but I don't know, Mearsheimer, Chappelle, two great minds. Yeah, there you go. Also, uh, Mearsheimer on his website, he has a little quiz like what do Michael Jordan and Al Capone and John Mearsheimer have in common? They all started out in Brooklyn and made their names in Chicago. There we go. Wow. <laughs> Fair enough. And for more from John Mearsheimer, go to his Substack, which is at mearsheimer.substack.com. He regularly posts his articles and talks there. And our website is usefulidiotspodcast.com. Go there to support the show get bonus content, including the extended version of this interview. And Thursday Throwdown. And of course, Thursday Throwdown, your midweek dose of media madness, where we play all the funny clips that uh, happen after Monday morning. So we just keep the Monday morning party going. Yeah, you're going to want to see this week some really great Russia Gate uh, Mishigas. It's back. Russia Gate's back, back. everybody. It never left, but it's back. Right. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For extended episodes, bonus content, and our weekly Thursday Throwdown episode, please subscribe at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Support the show for free by subscribing on YouTube, Rumble, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time.